Up next, Armstrong keynotes the government's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Black History Month series. My father and my mother, they were farmers. And when I was 16 years old, we grew up on a 200-acre estate that remains in the family. My story is not a rags to riches story, not one of poverty. You can see the chickens when you look down at the floor, not one of those stories. My class, my family was very affluent. I had eight brothers and two sisters. My parents paid for the education of every one of my brothers and sisters that wanted to go to college. So my story is not one of bigotry and racism. That was not my story. It was my parents' story, but it's not my story. My story is different. It's a blessing. I just happen to have very good parents. And my story is not unique. There are many black families that raise their kids, not with government help. They will do it by the sweat of their brow. They find odds and end jobs and give their best children the best high school education, the best college education. Not everyone goes to cover college and universities based on government largest. So I am very proud of my parents because when I graduated from college, I had no debt. My parents came to Washington, D.C. and found me a place on 201 Mass Avenue across from Union Station. I started in that building in a roach-infested efficiency apartment. My parents moved me in. And today, I own 80% of the building. So my story is a different story. I was a born entrepreneur. My parents were serial entrepreneurs. But that does not negate the fact as to why this month is so important. But I, I bring that up because my father introduced me to Senator Strom Thurmond when I was 16 years old. Um, in the middle of a tobacco field, my father decided to stop work at noon, and I had to clean up and go to this Dredock Seafood Hut in Mullins, South Carolina. He wanted to meet Strom Thurmond. My, my history told me Strom Thurmond was a racist and a bigotry. And my father said, you don't worry about that. He can help you with your career. You need to get to know him. He's a U.S. senator. And I always obeyed my parents. I always felt my parents always knew best. And so I never forget, I met Senator Thurman at the Dredock Seafood Hut. And the first thing I asked him was whether he was a racist or not. And I actually thought my father was going to slap me. I saw his hand go up, but he... he <laughs> He found his reasonableness where he did not smack me. He felt I insulted the senator. But a very interesting thing happened. Um, the senator says, you seem like a courageous and a brave young man when you graduate from high school. Send me your resume and come intern for me in Washington, D.C. So I don't know if you, any of you know anything about suckling and cropping and topping tobacco and sand lugging tobacco. Most of you are probably a little younger than I am, but I really grew up on a farm. 2,000 head of swine, three or 400 head of cattle, thousands and thousands of chickens, and lots and lots of um, soya beans and cotton. But my parents owned the farm. I grew up working for my parents. And my parents paid us to work on the farm because they felt that they had far more say-so over you and your work product if they were paying you. So there were certain expectations. So they did pay us. And so sure enough, uh, when I decided to 
inner South Carolina state. I just really got tired of going back home during the summer working on that tobacco farm. And I remember the conversation with Senator Thurmond, and sure enough, I sent in my resume. And he hired me for the summer. And my father didn't mind, I, but I didn't have to send my tobacco. So I spent summers, uh, every summer in Washington, I was at South Carolina State, I interned in Senator Thurmond's office. So I graduated from South Carolina State on May 2nd, 1981, and I started working in Washington on May 3rd, 1981. Parents bought me an airline ticket, flew me up, but they drove up, and AD remembers this, because uh, I put my parents up. Yeah, I put my parents up, because I was so grateful. I made a little money on the farm, and I saved a little bit, so I said, I'm gonna put my parents up. So I put my parents up at this fancy hotel, the Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill, and Aideen and her husband were at the bar, and she's the first person I ever met in Washington, D.C., and she's still with me today as executive producer of all our programming all over the world, still to this day. Because the relationships are important to me. I grew up with eight brothers and two sisters, and one of the things you could get a whipping for if you ever had conflict with your brother and sister, if you ever got in a fight with your brother and sister. But if your brother and sister were in a fight on the high school ground, you had to join in. Because if you didn't, you would really get a whipping when you got home. That's the kind of environment I grew up in. So I never grew up with really conflict with my brothers and sisters. So those were my relationships, and they were very important. I mean, honor and trust and loyalty was very important to me growing up. So when I came to Washington, really, they did not know what to do with me at the Department of Agriculture, because my father said to me, you know agriculture, you know animals, you know plants, do not let them box you into no black position. That's what my father said to me. Do not allow them to box you into a black position. You know what that is. And so when I was at the Department of Agriculture, Senator Thurman got me a position at the Department of Agriculture. John Block was Secretary of Agriculture at the time. Dick Ling was the Deputy Assistant Secretary, and they didn't know what to do with me. They literally did not know what to do. So they decided to have me handle the Black History Month program. They said this Black History Month program is coming up in February. We want to give you the responsibility to find the speaker and make the department proud. Back then, they had no internet. They barely had computers. It was called the Yellow Pages, the directory, and the telephone. But, but I was reading. I was a vociferous reader as a kid. I still read two books a week. I read. It's the best travel for me, to travel the world. Um, and so I was reading uh, in this article about Richard Pryor, who had been freebasing cocaine. Felt his career is over. He felt that he lost his way. And I don't know what it was. There was a spirit on me, and I was 21 at the time, that made me believe that Richard Pryor should be the keynote speaker for Black History Month. <laughs> now, you know his reputation, pre-basic, profanity, but it didn't matter. I was too naive to know it better. Naivety is not a bad thing, and I had it when I was 21. In fact, I had all of the naivety in the world. But I never forget, I went running to Senator the Thurman, because whenever I wanted to see him, he would meet with me, it was crazy. So I said, I got this idea. I want to bring Richard Pryor for Black History Month. He said, well, son, Reagan and the White House have a terrible relationship with black people. And if you were to bring Richard Pryor, that would add further insult and injury to his civil rights agenda. I don't think that's gonna work. I said, but look, 
we got to give it a chance. I haven't even started calling him yet. I don't even know how to get in contact with him. I thought maybe you could help me. He said, you don't know the man? I said, I have no idea. I've never, I have no idea how to get in contact with him. So he said to me, if you, if you get Richard Pryor to commit to come to Washington, D.C., I will be your champion to make sure they don't sabotage you. Did not understand what it meant at the moment, but it played a big role later on. So sure enough, I made 63 phone calls, 63. And on the 64th call, a guy by the name of Richard Pryor returned my call and said, you've been blowing up the phone lines here. I happen to be Richard Pryor's lawyer. Um, and Richard Pryor's suffered a lot of losing engagements. His career has been damaged. But you know, no one has ever asked Richard Pryor to give a straight speech in his life, ever. And the only thing that Richard Pryor knows is profanity. I said, well, look, he can't bring that to Washington. Because Senator Thurman told me if it didn't work out, I would get fired. But he said, but there's something Richard Pryor wants if he were to come. And so he said Richard Pryor would want President Reagan and Mrs. Reagan to host a reception for him at the White House in honor of Black History Month. And that's how it all began. Richard Pryor talked to me. He thought I was much older. We had the conversation. Sure enough, when they realized Richard Pryor was coming, they tried to cancel it. They said, no way. Richard Pryor's coming to Washington. And Richard Pryor had already assured me that he would give a straight speech. It would be the only straight speech he would have given in his life, but he would never insult the legacy of Dr. King. Senator Thurman believed so much in me that I was in his office when he called Ronald Reagan on the phone and said, look, I've got this young man here. I know what they're going to say to you in personnel. I know what they're going to say to you in civil rights. They're going to tell you not to bring Richard Pryor. This is my man. This is my protege. And if he says Richard Pryor, he's going to give a straight speech. I've got his back. And Ronald Reagan said to him, it'll happen no matter what they say. And even when they were trying to cancel it, it never happened. And Richard Pryor did come. And he gave the most electrifying speech that Washington has ever known. 10,000 people in the atrium of the Department of Agriculture. And the following day, the Washington Post had a headline in the style section, the Jesper Weeks. And they asked Richard Pryor, why did he come? And the Washington Post said, a lowly agriculture employee by the name of Armstrong Williams. Lowly is how they described me. <laughs> I was OK. I was like, hey, didn't bother me. Richard Pryor was in the house. Didn't matter. And he said, Armstrong Williams asked me to. And Richard Pryor gave, uh, I mean, it was an unbelievable speech. But Ronald Reagan and Mrs. Reagan honored him at the White House the next day with about 400 civil rights leaders. And I never forget. Uh, uh, when I was in the line, Richard Pryor said, you know, this is my man here. This man believed in me when nobody else did, and this is why. And the president said, Strom Thurmond believed in you too. So, yes, the point of the conversation. And from that conversation, from that meeting, Terry Giles is the person that motivated me uh, if I were to come up with $25,000, because he thought I was a businessman. But Richard Pryor used a term with me that I'd heard long ago. He says, you're a unicorn. He says, you're different. You have ideas. You have to understand what your gifts are. You're very creative. And no matter what anybody tells you, you're determined to make He said, you're 21 years old. He said, you're a child. But he encouraged me. We would get together until his death. And from that meeting, this guy by the name of Clarence Thomas, the very next day on that Monday, a person was on the phone with me by the name of Diane Hope, said this guy by the name of 
Clarence Thomas, who's chairman of the EOC, wants to meet with you. I met with him in two days. He said, how did you get, remember, Richard Pryor's huge. There is no comedian that's as bigger than Richard Pryor. Sunset Strip, Richard Pryor was it when it came to comedians. And so I went and met with this guy by the name of Clarence Thomas. He said, they have no idea what to do with you at the Department of Agriculture. Um, come work for me. I ended up working for him for four years. And the very other interesting story was the night before Richard Pryor was to give the speech, he was on the phone with Coretta Scott King, Jesse Jackson, and Julian Bond, and they were trying to convince him not to embarrass the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, that he was being used by the Reagan administration, by the Reagan White House, and it would be very disappointing if he were to give that speech. You know what he said to Mrs. King? He said, you know, but I'm not going to disappoint this young man who believed in me. I am not going to come to Washington and not embarrass him. I'm not just going to do that. And she asked, who was this young man? And until Mrs. King's death, we became like mother and son. In fact, I introduced her from that to Strom Thurmond. And through that, she was the one who convinced him to extend the Civil Rights Bill. And not only that, she was the one, because he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, that convinced him to extend and make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday. All that from. So my point is, in black history, you never know who your enemies are and your allies are. Time changes us all. Strom Thurmond may have been a different person in his 40s and 50s, but he was old. He was in his 70s and in his 80s. Because there's always this invisible hand that's always at work. None of us are the same. We all have the possibility of becoming something better, something greater, if we continue to believe in humanity. And so I grew up in a very interesting household. Because my father and mother did not want us to work on a sharecropper's farm, they did not want us to experience what they wanted to experience. They wanted us to be free. So my father in the 40s bought this farm. But he could not buy it as a black man. He had to have this guy by the name of Guy Davis front for him to buy the farm. And sure enough, when it was announced that the black man bought the farm, um, two weeks later, we were awakened on a Sunday morning, and my father fine tobacco barns with his fine red horses were on fire. They were so jealous and so envious that this black man had bought this farm. And we could see them walking away the three guys with the gas canisters in their hands. And my older brother said, my father, these white men will never let you do right. They'll keep their foot on your neck. They never want black people to progress. And my father, I never get, forget this as long as I live. In the heat of his loss, his devastation, his setback, he said, no, those are not three white men. Those were three individuals filled with hatred, jealousy, and malice. Never judge them the way they judged us. We're individuals, not groups. Let every man rise and fall on his own merit. The group people, you close doors that someday would be necessary for your journey in this thing you call life. That was very important for me that day with my parents, seeing my father with tears coming down his eye, refused to see them as white men, but as individuals. And that has been very important for me throughout my life. Looking at people, as individuals, it's very important. And so, you know, for us, we're broadcasters. 
You know, and I've done well. I've done well because, you know, I've known wonderful people in my life. Mrs. King, Maya Angelou, I ran Oprah Winfrey's foundation for two years until I did not realize that politics and giving out money is just the word. I, didn't, I never, ever, ever want to be in the business of giving out somebody's money. I mean, the politics is just unbelievable. But all those things I learned from, even um, in my role through Mr. Brown and Coretta Scott King, I got to spend a summer with Nelson Mandela when he was released from prison. Juan Williams and I had the opportunity to sit in his little room and respond to all the letters that were coming from Ronald Reagan and Ethel Kennedy. We were handwriting all those letters for almost a month, and he and Mrs. Mandela would always come in the back room and sign the letters. He was always said he was so grateful. We had the first lunch with Nelson Mandela when he was released from prison. He, Walter Sasulu, Winnie Mandela, and myself and Stan McGrin, we had the first luncheon with Nelson Mandela. Some incredible experience. And I'll never forget, I asked him, tell us the worst thing that happened to you at Forsmore. He did not want to talk about it. And I could tell he was pushing back on me. But you don't know, I have a very aggressive personality when I want to have one. And so I kept pushing the envelope. And finally, Mr. Mandela, with tears running down his face, I'll never forget it. He said what they would do to punish you is that they would bring you out on the hottest day, the hottest day. They would take this hot sand, have you strip buck naked, and just put all the sand on you, except your face, and the guards would go and urinate in their face. And, uh, and yet, I forgot me, he forgave them. He was not angry. And I asked myself, how is that possible? Because see, I'm more of a revolutionary than anything. Because if somebody slapped my mother, I'm going to shoot them, okay? I'm not turning up the cheek. That's not my personality. But you know what? I thank God for people like Mandela and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I think because it takes all kinds of people to bring us to the point where we all should be treated as humanity. Well, I am my brother's keeper. I never understand how in the world you can mistreat someone because of what they look like, or what they wear, or where they live, or what their zip code is. I can never understand that. It makes no sense to me. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of employees, and they will never ever utter that there's a chance that there would be any integration or discrimination because they're Jewish, because of their sexual preference, because of their race, because they're women. No, it's because of their merit. Why would I rob my business by harming my greatest asset, the human asset? Such ignorance to me makes no sense. Even the thing that my father taught me, which I think is so important, is that when we have contracts and we do business with people, and once that contract is completed, that is no longer my money. That money belongs to that person that did that job. I pay people ahead of time. I do not like owing people, because you know what? It's no longer mine. I don't play people with people's money. I don't play with their promotions. And I don't play with their livelihood. Because if you treat people with respect, you treat them with appreciation and decency, they will give you their best. All people want is the same. They don't want anything special, extra. They just want to be treated with dignity and respect and with honor. I learned that as a boy. 
and how my father treated my mother and how he treated us. Always as adults. We were always at the table, no matter who was in the house. Who was in the house? And the thing, the thing about life is that it comes full circle. And karma is something else. It really is. And so the lesson for us this Black History Month is not how we treat someone out there, but how we treat somebody who sits right beside us, who's always in our space. Because sometimes you have more of a spirit for someone you don't know than the very people who are in your life. I don't understand that. My brothers and sisters and my staff, they get the best from me, the best. Because I could not be who I am today without my executives, with people like Aideen and Xavier. And I'm difficult to work for, but I am fair. And that's the environment that we create. Now, everyone knows I'm a spiritual guy, very spiritual. Um, and, you know, I am um, the business manager for Dr. Carson. And I was a huge part of his presidential campaign. But you never know why people respect and honor people so much. You know, Maya Angelou had a profound influence on my life. Because we would fall out a lot, but we'd always get back together. We had this kind of very interesting relationship. But what an incredible human being. And I got a chance to spend a lot of time with Dr. Maya Angelou. You know, during the latter stages of her life, she and I fell out. We stopped speaking for a year. And the spirit put on my heart to call Dr. Angelo. I didn't hesitate whether she would take the call or not. I didn't really care. I said, well, if the spirit puts it there, I'm going to go for it. And sure enough, her sister came on the phone. She came on the phone. She said, oh, my son. Oh, I'm no longer mad at you. Why are you calling me? I said, well, Dr. Carson is doing this campaign event in High Point, North Carolina, and there's no way I can come that close to Greensboro and Winston-Salem and not reach out to see you. She said, oh, thank you so much. She said, but I don't want to see him. I want to see you. <laughs> she, she, it's true. It's a true story. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Mother, 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 we've grown, we've grown. We cannot push people aside because we perceive they're a certain way. I, there's no way I can come to your house and you not invite Dr. Carson. I'm telling this story for the front stuff because it really happened. Because she's very honest. She said, no, 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 I got to think about it. She said, let me have a few drinks and I'll get back to you. So... <laughs> So sure enough, about a week later, she called me. She said, bring him by, bring him by. She said, okay. She said, you're right. We got a heal wound. And it's not fair that I judge him. She said, but listen, you're helping me grow too. So sure enough, I was so excited. And so um, Dr. Carson got stuck at this speech. I had to leave him. So I go to Dr. Angelo's house. Where is Xavier? Xavier was with me. That's right. Xavier was there. So we go and see Dr. Angelo. No, she likes her drinks. I don't drink, but I celebrate her. And we were talking. I mean, she looked incredible. She looked so healthy, so vibrant. She had all these people coming in and coming out. And I was just, I get drunk when I'm around Dr. Angelo. She just knows the way she talks, her experience, the way she sashays. It's just, oh, it's just the best. So finally, Dr. Carson was coming. And she said, how many minutes? Five minutes, Xavier? She said, I only have five minutes. He's got to get in. He's got to get out. So Dr. Carson arrived. I'm telling you, 
they may have spent, I spent probably two hours with Dr. Angelo. Dr. Carson may have spent less than two minutes. But there's a moral to this story. Less than two minutes. So Dr. Angelo always has this thing called the white party. I never, ever, ever got an invitation. So I decided to be bold. I said, I'd really love to come to your white party because it was a big deal during the summer. So she said, you got your invitation and you can bring a guest. So she ushered us out to her sculpture garden. We go out to the sculpture garden because she had somebody else coming in. And I was teasing the Dr. Carson. I said, oh, Xavier and I are going to the white party. You're not going. I started to say, you barely made it here, but it's OK. I didn't tell him that. And he said this to me. He said, you're not, you're not going either. That's what he mean, I'm not going. He said, she'll be dead in two weeks. I said, what? He said, she will be dead in two weeks. She reeks with death. <laughs> Xavier, I'm telling you, I was so shocked. God is my witness. Two weeks to the day, we were having a breakfast with Dr. Carson at the Monaco restaurant over breakfast. And two weeks to that day, Nancy called me from the office and said, oh my God, did you hear? Dr. Angelo just died. Two weeks to that day, the gift that he has, Dr. Carson, I respect. I mean, I, my mother had her challenges back and forth, but in the final week of her life, I told her what the situation was. He said, Go, get home. She has a few days, and she died within a few days. True story. So people have gifts that others don't have. They can see things that you cannot see. That's why we can ill afford to harm, hurt, discriminate against anyone. You know, ever know the gifts that people store inside of them. And we all have something that is special and so unique about us that we should celebrate and honor and embrace. And so I've learned I don't care about people's politics. I don't care if you're conservative, liberal. I don't care what you are. What I want to do is lift up my hand and say, let's get to know each other. Because you'll be shocked at exactly what you may be looking for is the person, is in that person that you've extended your hand to. We can ill afford to close doors to anyone, is my message today. Anyone. And so, you know, as a broadcaster, and I'm going to wrap up, I'm enjoying this because I'm telling stories I've not told before about people I really care about and about lessons I've learned because life is about lessons. And about learning from these lessons, we all have our setbacks. I've certainly had mine. Um, but I thank God that my good days have been far better than my bad days. And let me tell you, and I've had some good days. You know, sometimes when we're going through these rough patches, we seem to focus on all the bad things that happen to us. But when I'm going through my rough patches, I think about all the good God has given to me, all the blessings that I have. I don't just focus on the pitfalls that I'm dealing with right now. I focus on the good. And let me tell you, eventually, I see the light again. And it pushes the darkness back. We got to keep looking for the light. You know, as a broadcaster, on many stations across the United States, NBC, ABC, CW, on a lot of stations, what you guys here do at the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, it's just anything short of miraculous, whether it's dealing with the national weather, the hurricane updates, because when you're a broadcast owner and you have stations in places like Charleston, Myrtle Beach, and Birmingham, Alabama, I don't think people realize March is just as devastating for us as September. While you may hear about the big hurricanes and the tornadoes, we usually get 14 tornadoes a year 
in these places. 14. And I'm telling you what it does for the elderly, the invalid, for the children, and the homeless. I mean, those reports that we run on our screens to give people some kind of refuge or some understanding where the storm is coming. And what you forget sometimes is that even if the storm doesn't come, the impact, the stress, what people have had to do to change their lives takes them some time to overcome. And while people may say climate change is a joke, if you're in the weather business, if you're in the TV business, you don't believe that. You know something is different today than it was 5, 10, or 15 years ago. I don't have to ask anybody. I see it every day through our meteorologists, every day. And sometimes my crew, we're there in Nichols, South Carolina, when the tornado and the storms come and the floods come to shut everything down. So your organization, what, this, what you do here is so necessary and so important to the lives of people all across this country. And our broadcast assets are a part of that. We appreciate it, and we really understand it as broadcasters. There's so much respect. When I got the call that I had been asked to come, I said, that's an interesting place to go. And then I started thinking about it as a broadcaster. What better place to go? and celebrate with people, because we don't realize we work together every day to try to bring some kind of security, some kind of peace, some kind of understanding to people's lives. You guys are all about compassion. You guys are first responders. You guys are there. I mean, we survive off your information. And you don't have to get it right all the time, because you're human. And sometimes data doesn't work. Sometimes equipment doesn't work. We understand you don't have to be perfect. When somebody says, well, I thought you said the hurricane was coming. It's okay. You get it right 96% of the time. And that's good enough for us and the broadcast business. Thank you for having us. Much respect. I'm honored. And God bless you. And God bless this great administration here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Strongcast.